Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, never-ending COVID restrictions. What's the holdup with the Conservative leadership race? An interim Conservative leader, Candace Bergen, swings by. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show, The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. What is that? I think we're on Wednesday, right? Yeah, Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. And we have a great show for you today. I'm going to be joined later on by Candace Bergen, the interim leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And also, I'm going to talk a little bit about where the Conservative leadership race is. It's not going to take all that long because it isn't really much of a race at this point, but I think there is uh, something noteworthy in that. So I'll, I'll spend like probably three minutes on it later on in the show. But I have to first off send an apology to all of my British Columbian listeners here. Now, I don't know how many of you there are from BC, especially after yesterday's show. I realized I was very insensitive to the plight of British Columbians yesterday because I did a whole segment on the show in which I was talking about, oh, this province is reopening and even Ontario's getting rid of the vaccine passport and Alberta, Saskatchewan, they're dropping the masks and even Quebec is doing, and I was talking about all of this and I didn't take a moment to shed a tear for British Columbians who are right now more than anyone else in Canada in a state of COVID limbo. It's actually quite baffling to me to look at where the situation is in BC, specifically Bonnie Henry's position, which is that there may never be a point at which restrictions aren't just a a fact of life. There was a a story my colleagues did at True North where Bonnie Henry, who's the chief medical officer in BC, said even before she drops the restrictions that she's expecting them to come back at a certain point. There's still a lot of this virus circulating around the globe, so there will inevitably be changes and surprises we will need to adapt to, she said, adding, we will have continued uncertainty as we move through the summer. We'll hopefully be in a good place for the next few months and then be able to relieve the pressures. But then she went on to say that once the fall comes, we have to be prepared for immunity to wane and have new approaches to adapt depending on what they see. New approaches. So what Bonnie Henry's saying is that even if you get something over the summer months that resembles freedom, you're unlikely to have it for too long a period of time because once the fall comes, you're going right back into the 2020 mindset. And even then, it's important to note that the order that is in BC keeping the vaccine passport in place isn't supposed to expire until the end of June. So we're still looking at several months from now And we spent a lot of time on the show yesterday talking about the voluntary aspect of whether businesses would have the right, if they really want to, to keep up with vaccine passports. Alberta has said, yeah, you can, but I really don't want you to. Ontario has said something very similar. Bonnie Henry's gone the other direction. She said in BC, yeah, once this is gone, I encourage you to do this. I want you to do this. She's actually promoting the indefinite nature of vaccine passports, the suspension of this state of Civil, well, basically the state of segregation. That's what Bonnie Henry is encouraging. So it's it's quite shocking because I remember back in, uh, when would it have been? March and April 
of 2020, you may recall, I was traveling the country producing a documentary series about firearms called Assaulted, Justin Trudeau's War on Gun Owners. And we did a fair bit of filming in British Columbia for that. One of the reasons was there's a, a huge hub of gun owners in BC. So there were lots of people to talk to. But also BC was a province that at the time other places were locking down really wasn't in lockdown. And I, I met up with some friends when I was there who all said, you know, we, we've never really locked down. And I actually commended BC, despite having an NDP government, for not doing things ag as aggressively as uh, the conservative governments of Ontario, Alberta, and even Saskatchewan had done. So BC, for a while, again, it's a, it was a very, very low bar. Like, the Seven Dwarves couldn't even do limbo under it. But BC, for a while was better than a lot of other places when it came to lockdowns and restrictions. So any good favor that BC has curried, I, I admit, is now completely gone. Uh, Bonnie Henry wants to just keep restrictions hanging over people like the Sword of Damocles indefinitely, and it's quite shameful. Because I already think we are, in a lot of ways, seeing restrictions lift in a manner that is too little too late. This was a big theme that we had on the program yesterday, talking about how, yes, some of these restrictions are lifting, but a lot of them are remaining in place. And since that show, the number of emails, I can't get through them all, but the number of emails I've received from people that say, you know, my kid's day camp is still doing vaccine passports. This concert venue I want to go to is still doing vaccine passports. A lot of people that are seeing in their lives, a lot of places are not reopening. And again, you know my position on this. I'm a libertarian. I think individual businesses, private businesses should be able to make their own decisions. But when we see places that are government adjacent, that are connected to government, that are going down this road, that is entirely wrong. But again, government has already claimed that this is a right that it holds. Government has already claimed that it has the right to make these decisions. So what's the difference? And that's the problem is that once you surrender your civil liberties to the state, once you give the government the right to make these decisions for you about your life, about your health, about your business, what happens next is only a matter of degrees. And we are going to be in this country for years, sleeping in the bed that we've made over the last two years. And by we, I don't mean me and you listening, but we, uh, the Canadians, generally speaking, who for a long period of this were supportive of this, were welcoming it, were saying, regulate me more, govern me more. There was one sign, I don't think I got a picture of it, but there was one sign that I saw at the trucker convoy rally in Ottawa the first weekend that was like, govern me harder, daddy, which I found, uh, you know, a little bit lewd. But at the same time, I kind of understood the sentiment, which is that you've had Canadians that have just had this like fetishistic way of just demanding more government regulation, demanding more government oversight. And this is the byproduct of that. All of these Canadians that are right now, and again, especially in BC, but even elsewhere, that are looking around the world and seeing the Danes back to normal, the Brits back to normal, the Finns back to normal, uh, the Chinese back to normal, and they're looking around and saying, well, in BC, I can't go and get a cup of coffee unless I'm vaccinated and want to prove that, or I can't send my kid to a day camp unless the kid has the vaccine passport, even with myriad studies talking about diminishing returns for vaccinating children, the risks outweighing the benefits. But we're still moving down this road of perpetually mandating vaccination for things. Universities as well. I mentioned this yesterday. Government adjacent or in many cases just outright government entities. But keeping these vaccine requirements in place, which is denying students the right to an education. 
denying students the right to an education, keeping them in place for completely unscientific reasons. And this is going to be with us for quite a long time. Now, there's something I'm working on a story I can't tell you just yet. It's not a not a groundbreaking investigative story, but it's a, a segment I'm putting together on this show, a discussion that I want to have that will be next week that you'll want to watch because I, I'm trying to tie this all up in a, a neat little package for you and explain where we're headed. And I'm trying to do it in a way that is not rooted in conspiracy, that is actually rejecting conspiracy because you don't need to make things up with how bad things are. They're bad enough, you don't need to spin a conspiracy. That's my view, myopic as it may sound. So stay tuned for that next week. But the point that I'm bringing up here in raising it is that nothing government does is by nature temporary. Government doesn't do temporary very well. And even when they do temporary, what they've done is they've created an apparatus and an infrastructure that will outlast and outlive whatever the temporary program is. And that's been the concerns that people have raised about vaccine passports. What's going to happen to these databases? What's going to happen to the QR codes? Now, I never got the QR code. Not because I thought there was anything untoward about it, but just fundamentally, I did not respect the legitimacy of it. So I've never been to a restaurant that required a QR code. Uh, when I was out in Alberta speaking at a conference a couple of months ago, I had my little paper pass and that was good enough for them at the time. But the reality is, and by the way, the number of times I've been to a restaurant in the vaccine passport era is basically only when I've traveled. And I think my wife's in my anniversary. That was basically it. Because... They've taken the ability away, government has taken the ability away to just function and navigate in civil society the way you're supposed to. And that's why mask mandates are not insignificant. People say, the mask proponents say, well, it's just a mask. It's just a little thing on your face. Why do you care? I care because that is not the way life is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be abnormal to walk around and see a face. I, I, I talked to someone, I told this to Ezra Levant on his show the other night when I appeared. I, I said, I, I met someone or was talking to someone rather who had started a new job and they had said just in passing that they had never seen their coworkers' faces because they were working in person and maybe they had seen it in like a Facebook profile photo or something or a Zoom call, but, but in person they had just never seen it. And they were sharing this as a novelty, but th there's actually something quite unsettling about that 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 is not the way a healthy, normal society is supposed to function. You talk about kids in school. Kids in school that if they're of a certain age, five, six years old, they've never seen their classmates' faces, except for if they're in one of those lunchroom environments where you have to sit and not speak and just stare at your sandwich box, and that's all you're allowed to do. Because science. And one point that I'm not the first to raise, but I need to reiterate it here, is that we may not know for years the total damage that we've unleashed on society economically, on youth and education, in mental health, on adult mental health as well. We tend to focus a lot on the plight of children, and I think with good reason, but adults are barely getting through this. Parents of children who have to be strong and guide their kids through this when they themselves are struggling with it. It will take years for us to realize how much damage we've done. So when I look at people like Bonnie Henry in British Columbia that are still putting this forward, that are still driving this, the question is a fundamentally simple one. What is wrong with you? Seriously. I mentioned that I would spend a couple of moments on the conservative leadership race. Again, not much to update you on. The Leadership Election Organizing Committee, which is the body that sets the rules 
for the race itself has been chosen, but they've not actually come to any agreement about what the rules are going to be. So no one knows, are we going to have a two-month race that's wrapped up by the end of spring? Are we going to have a six-month-long race that's going to go into the fall? No one knows at this point. Pierre Polyev is definitely the front runner. Like anytime we talk about this, everyone says Pierre Polyev is the guy they want. So certainly if there's a short race and he's in, he wins very quickly, I think. If there's a longer race, that's where things could change. You've got Jean Charest, the former Liberal Premier of Quebec, who's poking around, who it seems like is all but certainly getting into the race. You've got a broadcaster and columnist Tasha Kiridin, uh, Patrick Brown, the mayor of Brampton, who we had on the show a few weeks back, three or four weeks back. He's considering a bid as well. And all of this is quite interesting. Brian Platt had tweeted that anyone who's rumored to be a conservative leadership candidate was writing an op-ed in the National Post about Ukraine. And there was like a daily schedule he posted about that of, you know, Peter McKay did his and Pierre Polyev did his and then Jean Charest did his. And he had sort of joked that Patrick Brown needed to whip up an op-ed. And then just this morning, uh, before I started recording the show, I noted that Tasha Kerridan had a Russia-Ukraine op-ed in the National Post. So if anyone writes about Russia-Ukraine, Ukraine in the National Post uh, guarantee you they're considering a conservative leadership bid. These are the rules as they've been established right now. Uh, I feel bad for anyone who's not running that does it, like Rex Murphy, who will write, presumably, if he hasn't already, some op-ed on Russia-Ukraine. Everyone will think, oh, Rex must be running for the conservative leadership. You know, Canada could do a heck of a lot worse than that. So if you're listening, Rex, uh, you've got my vote. (laughs) We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk to the one who is the leader of the Federal Conservative Party for the time being, Candace Bergen. She joins me up next here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. As I mentioned earlier, very pleased to have joining us Candace Bergen, who is the interim leader of the Conservatives. Now, if you haven't been paying attention to Canadian politics in the last couple of months, you'll know this came about somewhat abruptly as Aaron O'Toole was removed by his caucus members in the midst of the trucker convoy. And again, I think there were a number of factors there, but certainly that was one of the leading ones here. Candace, good to talk to you again. Thanks very much. And and it's been a little while, so congratulations, as I've not spoken to you since you've uh, ascended to this position, but thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, it's been, I kind of joke, wow, it's been a pretty pretty quiet month uh, here in Ottawa. Uh, sarcastic, not at all quiet, very busy, a lot going on, but uh, it's uh, it's been productive and there's a lot of good work that I think we've been able to do. Uh, let's actually start right there. This was a, an abrupt uh, job title change for you. Obviously, the uh, Conservative Party went through this uh, change with, with Aaron O'Toole being removed and then you being uh, selected as the interim leader very quickly. What has this been for you, really, practically? Because you've come into this position in the midst of uh, the convoy. We now have the uh, Russia war in, in Ukraine. We have a number of political challenges in Canada, plus the Conservative Party is obviously going through change. Uh, you had to hit the ground running. What's been the priority for you? Well, I'm fortunate because of the roles that I've had uh, previously under with, with Ron Ambrose, uh, Andrew Shear, and then with Aaron O'Toole as house leader and then going on as deputy leader. I was I, I really have a good idea of what what the leadership role is. And so I was literally able to hit the ground running uh, the, the Wednesday when everything happened. It was a very quick day. We had question period. 
right after our caucus meeting and then uh, we had the the vote for the interim leader and the next day parliament was was on and you're right we had uh, the convoy out here in Ottawa and issues that we had to address right away the caucus really has come together it was a very a much hands-on all hands on deck kind of mentality and everybody rallied around and we uh, we were able to, to tackle some of the, the difficult issues so that's really what what we've been doing in terms of my priorities andrew i'll, I'll tell you uh, i believe first and foremost my job is to keep our, our caucus united and when i say united that doesn't mean that we always agree on everything i think that it's a, a myth to think that we can always agree or all be on exactly the same page on every issue I think, in fact, that's kind of the liberal uh, way of, of doing things. They think everybody has to agree or somehow it doesn't work. As conservatives, we're going to disagree and we're going to have different opinions. And I think that makes us better. But as a caucus, we can talk about it, come to certain positions and then be disciplined and focused in what we're doing for Canadians. So that's really been my goal. And, and then also ensure that conservatives are proud to be conservative. I think that we have a lot to be proud of as conservatives, our values, our principles, the foundation that makes us conservative. So I want conservatives to be proud to be conservatives and, and excited about what we're doing. Clearly, that approach to caucus management that you just described didn't exist. Caucus members felt under Aaron O'Toole's leadership, which is why there was enough discontent that he was removed under the Reform Act. So how do you, moving forward from that, uh, correct that? How do you keep the caucus together, the different factions of the party, and also the membership and the base beyond the caucus across the country? Well, I was also fortunate to work under Stephen Harper in his government and in his cabinet. And I found Stephen Harper, although a very strong leader and he knew the direction he wanted to go, he really set an example for how to collaborate and work with the caucus. And that was as a prime minister. Uh, Rana Ambrose continued that and, and uh, other leaders have done that. And I, I find that that's the best way to approach issues, whether it's legislation the government is bringing forward, whether it's issues that we as a caucus have to deal with. We have a very intelligent, principled, hardworking group of men and women here in Ottawa who are conservative MPs. And I just find it's uh, the best approach is to consult with them. So we have a good process whereby we do that through our shadow cabinet process. We have a priorities planning uh, committee and then caucus meets regularly. And I, I, I ask them what they think and I take their advice and tell them what I'm thinking. And then I find that whether I was house leader or deputy leader or now as leader, that is the best approach to finding consensus and moving forward. Uh, you, we mentioned earlier the convoy. This is, of course, a, a huge issue that I, I think not just for Canada and, and for Ottawa, but for the conservative movement in this country. You had, I think, the conservative base that has been for the last year, certainly very fervently against the vaccine mandates, the vaccine passports, not feeling like there was a, a voice in the official opposition on those issues. You've had a clear voice on this. You, you've spoken up. I even played on my show yesterday your exchange with the prime minister in the House of Commons from question period yesterday about that very idea. But how do you take that and as the interim leader, make sure that those people continue to be heard? Because what I've been hearing for the last two years, especially since the last election and through the last election, was that conservatives in Canada, and I use that with a small C and a big C, did not feel like their interests were being represented by the Conservative Party of Canada. 
Well, uh, you know, I know I, I'm from one of the strongest conservative writings in the country, Southern Manitoba, and, and I talked to so many people, uh, first of all, explaining the difference between provincial vaccine mandates and federal vaccine mandates and the fact that as a federal representative, I had no impact or power over what provinces did. But as a federal MP, I could sure stand up against Trudeau's federal uh, mandatory vaccines. And I think we were all clear, I believe conservatives were all clear on that during the election. Some would say we could have been uh, gone out on it more. That, that's the past. What I do know is when Trudeau uh, threatened and then implemented the vaccine on truck, the vaccine mandate on truckers, that very much went against conservative policy. And so we could um, very strongly support the spirit of what the truckers and their supporters were coming to Ottawa to talk about. And that's why we could meet with them. I met with constituents who were here. I believe that's what government and opposition leaders should do. We should listen to people. We should hear them. I think if Trudeau had done a little more of that, instead of calling them names and wedging, dividing, and stigmatizing, we would not uh, have gotten into the, the situation that we were in with, with the, the truckers here for as long as they were. We also did believe, and we do believe, that we uh, need to be following the laws of the land. And that's, that was why we said to the, the truckers and their supporters, don't blockade borders. That's, it's too important to Canada's economy. And move the trucks because you can't be parked illegally. And I believe you can say both things. We support your fight against mandatory vaccines, but we don't believe you should be doing things illegally. Uh, that was our position. And so now as we're moving forward, and I, I asked the prime minister about this recently, provinces are opening up, vaccines or ma mandates are being lifted. Where's the federal government on this? They, they frankly are so behind. And you know, I said kind of tongue in cheek, but it's actually true. They always say they're so progressive and you know ahead of the times. They're actually looking very old-fashioned right now in their approach to vaccine mandates. So we've got to keep pushing them on this. It's not just about freedom. It's actually about what's good for our economy. It's about what's good for Canadians' mental health. It's it, Canadians need to be free to live their lives, and uh, the mandates and the restrictions have to be lifted federally. I'm appreciative that you don't want to spend uh, too much time looking into the past here, but I, I do want to talk about one contrast between the Conservative Party of a few months ago and a position that we've heard from you and, and also your colleagues in, in caucus in the last couple of weeks, and that's a very firm position against the carbon tax. And I know with, with everything else that's been going on in Canada and the world, this hasn't necessarily been the top of mind issue on the political agenda, but for Canadians that are paying their heating bills, it certainly is an issue. And, and again, talk to me a little bit about where the Conservatives are on this, because I, I think even a year and a bit ago, Conservative Canadians were fairly confident that your party was against the carbon tax, that then it ran on a version of a carbon price that people have said, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation have said, was a carbon tax. So where is the party now? Where are you now on this? Well, Andrew, I think you are right in that uh, there are a lot of things that Canadians are, are watching on the news and very concerned about, but they're still going up and going and filling up their tanks and buying groceries and seeing that the cost of everything is going up and it's starting at the pumps. So Conservatives are very concerned with inflation uh, and, and increased taxes on Canadians. Listen, my position is this. Uh, we have a leadership race going on right now. Leadership candidates will articulate their belief on how we best fight uh, 
reducing emissions and fighting climate change and what, what role Canada can play in that. They can talk about their ideas and the electorate, the, the membership will support their ideas or not. So I'm going back just to the basics of what our uh, grassroots party has determined. And Conservatives don't support tax increases. We certainly don't support a Liberal carbon tax that does absolutely nothing to reduce emissions anywhere and only hurts Canadian uh, energy, oil, gas, and Canadian consumers. And I think right now, when we see what's going on with Putin and the fact that Putin has uh, been able to monopolize the sale of, uh, of, of, of gas to Europe, for example, Canada is cut out of the equation so we're not only talking about how that hurts the environment, but just as importantly, and I would say more importantly right now, the safety, sovereignty, and energy security of the world. When Canada's cut out, whether it's through a carbon tax or other measures that the Liberal government has put on our, on our sector, it hurts the world. So, um, you know, that's, that's a big answer, but basically to say I'm, I, on policies like this, I'm, I'm in a safe place when I stick with our grassroots policy and then let the candidates articulate their particular views on these these kinds well, of issues. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up the, the Russia approach, because I, I know that uh, the prime minister did come out this week and, and say that we're going to uh, c cancel imports of crude from Russia. But I would say, first off, it, it shouldn't have taken an invasion of Ukraine to start talking about reducing our dependency on foreign oil, especially when we have the capability and capacity in Canada and an energy sector here. And, and the same could be said about U.S. leaders. I know, obviously, Canadian politicians don't have as direct uh, control over what the United States does, but we can represent Canada's interests. And, and in Canada, I still am baffled, and especially when I talk to uh, Albertans and people from Saskatchewan about this, baffled at how dependent we are on foreign oil from countries that are not democracies when we could develop our sector so much more than it is right now. I agree, Andrew. And, you know, it's not only our, our dependency or still, or even that we're still using it, it's the fact that we have no champions in our country. No, we should have a prime minister who goes to other countries and says, do not ever lecture us about oil and gas uh, or emissions because Canada is the leader when it comes to uh, extracting and transporting the cleanest uh, oil, gas and LNG in the world. But we don't have that champion. And so we allow the world to, uh, to, to scold and really reprimand us, even in the way that they, uh, where there's investment, insurance, all kinds of other uh, measures that they're, they're using to try to constrain Canada's oil and gas development. And if we had a leader who would say, no, enough of that, that's, that's nonsense, uh, and actually point out the, the big polluters in the, country, in the world, and then uh, ensure that the, the, our oil and gas is promoted and used. So that's only, it's just one piece of it, but it's, I'm, I'm glad that we're at least able to talk about it a little more right now. And I think more and more people are seeing that when Canadian oil and gas is kept in the ground and Putin is able to sell his, you know, look at what he's doing. Look at the, look at the billions of dollars he, ha he has and he's using it right now to kill and destroy uh, Ukrainian people and a sovereign democratic nation. That's a hard fact to face up to, but it's, it's the truth. 
Just looking forward to some of the other items on the uh, political agenda here in Canada. The Emergencies Act, very controversial. We know just looking at it in practice in Ottawa that uh, civil liberties were affected, press freedoms were affected, peaceful assembly uh, was affected, and obviously the parliamentary oversight of this uh, tended to just disappear when just as the Senate was uh, weighing this, uh, Justin Trudeau decided that the emergency no longer existed. I know the Emergencies Act does require require a report and investigation of this after the fact. But but realistically, does Justin Trudeau get away with this now by declaring the emergency over? Is there still some accountability there? Well, we we believe that there absolutely should be. We uh, we did not support the use of the Emergencies Act. We you know we looked at it and and found out very quickly that all of the laws were in place that needed to be. He had and, and, and law enforcement had the laws that they needed uh, to clear especially we're talking about the trucks. I mean, they obviously did it. They did it before the Emergencies Act. They cleared away the blockades at borders, but they had what they needed to clear the uh, the trucks from Ottawa. Trudeau was in a political emergency, and so he invoked the Emergencies Act. In terms of oversight, we're in Ottawa this week. We then have a, a two-week previously scheduled uh, riding break where we're in our ridings. Uh, but I'm going to tell you this, Andrew. Conservatives uh, are not finished talking about this and holding the prime minister to account. He is trying to, Jerry, really, I, um, I guess the word would be, he's trying to manipulate the, the committee to make sure that he's got uh, enough, the NDP, who are basically his lapdogs on this, they're probably going to be uh, help, helping chair the committee, but we're going to use every tool available and we will not uh, let the prime minister get away with doing this. But I will say this, Andrew, we cannot do it alone. We need people who are talking about this, uh, holding their MPs to account. If you have a Liberal or an NDP MP representing you, you need to tell them that what they did wasn't acceptable. Politicians cannot do it by themselves. We need people speaking out loudly, clearly, and, and forcefully about this. Obviously, in a democratic country, uh, doing it legally, safely, but we need people speaking out about it. And we'll keep doing our job here in Ottawa. I know there's lots more coming up in the next few weeks and months, the revival of Bill C-36, of Bill C-10. So we'd love to get you back on the show to talk about some of those. I know they are very significant for free speech, and I've appreciated conversations I've had in the past with you about that. So we'll have you back on. Candace Bergen, Interim Leader of the Conservatives, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Andrew. That was Candace Bergen, Conservative Interim Leader. Let me know what you think. Andrew at andrewlawton.ca is my email address. And again, the point was to find out what her priorities are. She's not the permanent leader. She's there. I, I don't mean it in an insulting way, but she's there as a placeholder. Well, the Conservatives select the leader who will carry the party into the next election. But again, in a minority parliament, that's not necessarily a given. Theoretically, if the NDP stopped becoming the lapdogs, as she aptly put it, there could be a, quite a significant change there. But at this time, she's just there. And as she said, you can always fall back on the position of standing up for the grassroots. What a concept. What an idea. In any case, we will talk to you soon. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North, The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. Thank you. God bless. And good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.